From MGMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. One, one drop of water can contaminate uh, an entire supply. And so you don't want that one bad cultural flit, fit contaminating your entire organization and what you've worked so hard to build and protect. That's Jacob Simon talking about hiring the right people to match your culture. We'll hear more from Jacob later in the show. And we'll also talk to Molly Ramsey and Amber Peterson about onboarding and Susan Murphy about closing the deal. That's all coming up on part one of our staff management series. But first, a word from our sponsors. Grow as a leader in your organization and help develop a stronger culture in your practice. MGMA's online seminar, Transformational Leadership from the Front Office to the C-Suite, will help you embrace change management and strategic vision planning to expand your leadership toolbox. For more information, visit mgma.com leadership. In a recent MGMA stat poll, we asked healthcare leaders, what's the most important aspect when hiring staff? Nearly 70% said cultural fit. Joining us to talk about this is Jacob Simon, Executive Vice President with the Medicus Firm. Jacob, I know you're a strong proponent of culture. Why is it such a key to success for medical practices and for businesses in general? You know, Daniel, that's a, that's a great point. And I, I saw that stat line. I was, um, you know, it, it immediately made me thought of, it, it's good to see that a lot of individuals out there recognize how important that culture is. I think the second part of that then is acting on that. Uh, it, it's easy to say that that's what that you're, you're hiring for, but it's a, a completely another thing to implement the policies and strategies to be able to do so. Uh, you know, ultimately, I, I just think having a positive culture, it, it's just so important to your business strategy because it's either going to strengthen or undermine your objectives. Um, you know, first and foremost, it attracts talent. Uh, job candidates, they're going to evaluate your organization and its climate. You know, a, a strong, clearly defined, positive culture, it's really going to attract those ideal, talented uh, players that you're trying to get to join your organization. It, in, it drives engagement and retention. Um, you know, it, it's really going to impact how employees work with one another within your company, uh, which ultimately allows you to be successful. It, it affects performance. You know, time and time again, you see organizations with stronger, stronger cultures, you know, they outperform their competitors uh, because everyone within the organization is unified and has a common goal. Uh, you know, and then ultimately it impacts happiness and satisfaction, you know, and, and those employees that are they're happy and satisfied, they're going to be much more tenured employees that your retention rates are going to be significantly higher, uh, which ultimately allows you to continue to build and grow your organization. Yeah, and we, we talk so much about processes in this industry, and they, they are vital to the, to the success of a practice, but you can have amazing processes and procedures in place, but you know, pointing to what you're talking about, if you don't have the right people, the right mix of people in there to uh, you know, activate and implement those processes, it, it really doesn't matter, does it? That's right. Uh, you know, it, you can you can have your core values written on your walls, uh, um, 
But if your employees aren't embodying those things, if they don't believe in those things, if they're not promoters of those those items, then all they are are words on the wall. Uh, and, and so it's really important to to have the individuals in here that, you know, our, our philosophy is not only uh, fit within those core values or those core competencies, but they're also promoters of those core competencies. Uh, and they go above and beyond just what you're looking for in, in a average candidate. Now, when you don't have the right fit, a couple of things can happen. One, you can have people hang around forever who are those so-called bad apples that can kind of poison the culture that exists. The other one is, uh, and you talk about this quite a bit in your presentations, that it, it results in a lot of employee turnover. And so uh, that's not good either. Neither one of those is a good outcome. And, and you've done quite a bit of research. You've, you've measured both the financial and the cultural cost of employee turnover. Tell our audience a little bit about that, both first financial and then also that cultural impact of high employee turnover. Um, you know, the financial co impact is, is a little more quantifiable. Um, you know, there's a lot of studies out there that, that estimate different percentages or different amounts based on an employee's, um, you know, tenure level or, or salary or compensation level. A couple of significant stats that stuck out to me in our research is that Zappos CEO Tony Shea estimated that bad hires just cost his company well over $100 million. Um, and according to the U.S. Department of Labor, the price of a bad hire is at least 30% of their first year earnings. There are some studies that believe that it, it, it's up to 70% of an employee's annual salary by the time that you... Uh, find a new employee, replace that, that previous employee, and deal with some of the ramifications of that lost production or uh, some of the negative impacts that that person may have caused your company from a financial standpoint. Um, you know, it, it really differs situ situationally, but a lot of people, a, a lot of studies even um, suggest that the higher um, compensation level you go, the larger percentage of that salary you actually lose when you haven't when you have employee turnover. Um, so you know th those impacts are obviously real. They're quantifiable. People can see them. I think really, to me personally, the biggest impacts are, are on the culture. And you know it goes back to some of the things we talked about that were being so important uh, to a positive workplace culture. But you, you lose engagement. You know you, you lose employee engagement. When, when individuals within an organization see turnover, um, you know, their perception of that is something bad is happening. You know, it's, it's a natural human reaction to think what's going on uh, because a lot of times they don't see everything that's going on behind the scenes, uh, especially if you're proactive with, with managing an employee out of your organization that's not a good fit. Uh, a lot of people don't always see why or understand the why. And, and so that can be a, a, a huge uh, negative impact on team morale. Um, you know, when they see that, that turnover, um, you're also dealing with some of the ramifications of poor quality of that individual being in place, whether that's the quality of service they're providing your patients, your, 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 your clients, your customers, um, or, or just the, the quality um, a morale that they they caused in the office, and, and then you're really looking at. Uh, oftentimes, 
depending on your organization, a smaller organization, that one bad apple uh, can spoil the bunch much more quickly and can have a much more negative impact immediately. Um, and, and resetting that culture is often very difficult to do. Uh, and then as you look into some of the larger organizations that the, the, the struggles there is a lot of times they're not able to identify uh, a bad fit until much further or later in the process. And by that time, some of the impacts can be much more sustained. And so it's, it's really just the, the cost of resetting that culture that you've spent so much time and focus and energy creating to be a positive thing uh, to now have shifted to another paradigm that you have to recorrect. Yeah. And I wanted to follow up on that because it seems to me that you would have to, before you decide who is a good cultural fit, you have to define your own culture first. How do you, how do you go about doing that before you then decide if this person you're interviewing would be a fit within that culture? Mm -hmm. that, that's a great question, Daniel. Um, I, I think for every organization, it's going to be different. Um, one of the things that we did was um, coming up with four core competencies or, or things that we felt like an employee must possess or traits that they must have in order to be a good cultural fit or what we deem as an ideal team player for our organization. Uh, we, we did use, uh, we, we based some of our premise largely off of uh, the book, The Ideal Team Player by Patrick Lencioni. Uh, it's a great read. Uh, if anyone has, hasn't had the opportunity to, to read it yet, I would suggest that you do. Uh, but some of those core competencies that we took were the, the humble, hungry, people smart, and then we added a fourth uh, for an, someone to have the ability to manage conflict. And with those four things, we just felt like they were, they were traits or core competencies that we knew that our employees must possess in order to be not only successful in their role and successful on behalf of the organization, but also work cohesively within our organization with other individuals and with the teams in order to create that environment that's conducive for everyone's success. Now, based on your research, what are some of the rules that organizations break in making bad hires? Because you've explained in a previous conversation that you and I had about how you suggest people go about that selection process. Because to me, it would, if you're, I don't think what you're saying is for a cultural fit, do I simply like this person? Because then you just have a lot of buddies or like-minded people in the organization. And that doesn't mean you're going to solve your problems there either, right? That's correct. You know, I think having diversity in, in many aspects is, is important. You know, I think there are three common rules that, that I've seen organizations break um, and that we've experienced internally as we've grown uh, our organization um, and, and we've we've made these mistakes too and, and the first is you know hiring individuals that aren't an absolute yes you know looking back any of the bad hires that we've made or I think that anyone's ever made they could probably say at one point in time during the interview process this wasn't they weren't a hundred percent sure about this candidate and, and in my opinion if, if you're not a hundred percent sure then it needs to be an absolutely no um, because you've spent so much time and invested so much on that culture internally, uh, it's not worth taking the risk or hoping that someone 
can change or can potentially be a fit or can adapt to your culture, they need to be someone that you're absolutely sure is going to be an ideal team player for your organization. Um, The second thing, as you mentioned, is don't hire people just because you like them. Um, You do want to look at people that you like and that you know would be a good fit um, and would get along well with other individuals in your organization. But if you just base your hires off of hiring those individuals you like, as you mentioned, you're going to come up with a team of a lot of uh, like-minded individuals, and that stagnates growth. Um, so don't just hire someone because you like them. And, and we've made that mistake. I've seen a lot of organizations make that mistake. Typically, when you like someone, you, you tend not to look two or three extra layers deep to try to uncover, are they truly a good ideal team player? Uh, and, and you make much more rash decisions. Um, and then the third thing is don't hire out of desperation. Um, It's hard to do, especially in today's um, healthcare climate where there's a lot of needs that need to be filled very quickly uh, in in order to satisfy the needs of the patients in the communities. Uh, But hiring out of desperation, it it never works. It it always comes back to bite you. It ends up being a a big um, cost, not only financially, but culturally in the long run, because you're going to end up replacing that individual at some point in time. Uh, and, and it just sets you further back. Now, as you know, the healthcare industry is in a really tough workplace situation right now due to staffing shortages, burnout, high turnover. I'm sure many of our listeners are experiencing these factors in their own practices. So there can be uh, an urge to kind of hit the panic button, make a panic hire to fill roles so you aren't so understaffed. Um, tell us, walk us through why that's a terrible idea and, and more importantly, what can practices do to avoid making those hires? Yeah, I mean, you're right. It, it is a, a, it's, you're really stuck between a rock and a hard place, you know, sometimes. But it's a terrible idea because anchoring back to those financial and cultural costs, nearly 99% of the time you're going to end up replacing a candidate that you hired in desperation that didn't fit your core competencies or your culture. And not only do you take the risk of, you know, not only do you face the cost of replacing that individual, but even worse, if they, you know, taint your, your culture internally, or that, that, um, that causes a culture reset internally, there's a good chance that you could potentially lose another individual that you already have. And so it's really, you know, the, you're, you're taking the chance of losing more than just that individual you hire, but losing other individuals within your organization that lose faith in the company's culture as a result of those individuals that you brought on. You know, I think some of the best practices to avoid making some of those situations, you know, number one is, you know, having a, cons- a consistent pipeline in, in candidates. You know, never stop recruiting. You, you never know at any point in time what could happen. Um, you know, most people are in a situation they would never turn down a great candidate anyway. So always be recruiting, you know, kind of the rule of ABC, always be recruiting. Uh, I, I think the second thing is use internal referrals. No one knows your culture better than your current employees. No one's going to be able to better identify a friend or a colleague that they meet that would be a good fit for that culture 
continue to leverage those, promote individuals to refer those types of people to your organization. Um, you know, and then lastly, I would say just have a process in place. You know, one of the things that we've recognized that have really helped us in, in identifying some of those cultural fits um, or, or keeping us from making panic hires is we have a specific process that we must check all the boxes for. And if that means we check four out of the five boxes and we get to the fifth one and, and we can't check it based on some of the parameters that we've set for the role, um, we're not making that higher versus, you know, sometimes people get in a position where they check the first two boxes and say, okay, hey, we just need them. Let's, let's go ahead and hire them. We can worry about checking the other boxes later. And it comes back to, to haunt you. And so I'd say have a specific process, make sure that everyone on your team and within your organization is bought into that process and is willing to adhere to that all the way through before making that hire. Now I want to give you a final thought, a final scenario here. Let's say you go through the, your strategic process, you hire that dream candidate, and yet, and I know everybody's been through this at least once, uh, once that person gets on site, things, they just aren't working. The person isn't who you thought they were. They're not a good fit. What's next? Well, I, I think, you know, I think the, the, the key phrase to follow here is, is hire slowly and fire quickly. And, and um, you know, that can come off as a little harsh. I, I think the important thing is just managing that person out of that situation. Um, you know, one, one drop of water can contaminate the, an entire supply. And so you don't want that one bad cultural fit, fit contaminating your entire organization and what you've worked so hard to build and protect. Um, you know, it kind of goes back to the stages of what we believe is a good higher evolution. You know, it, and we've experienced this and I've seen other entities experience it. You know, first you're trying to hire a high performer uh, and you're not as concerned about their cultural fit, but you feel like, man, they're, they're really going to make a difference. Um, they, they have a proven track record of being very skilled and being a high performer. Uh, those types of individuals don't work out, you know, because they're not a cultural fit. And then you, then you kind of trans, transform into that, that high performer. Uh, they may not be your ideal team player, but you believe that you have such a strong internal culture that you're going to be able to change them. And that, that's a false belief as well, because people don't change. Uh, their core competencies don't change. And so, um, you transition then to somebody that's a great cultural fit, but maybe not a skill set fit, you know, and, and as great as a person as they are and as much as they're liked, uh, they're not performing as well as you need them to on behalf of your organization. And so that's where you finally get to that final stage of hiring the great cultural fit, but they also possess the desired skill set or the ability to learn those core competencies that you need. Uh, and that anchors back just the process the questions, being strategic with that. Um, but again, long and short, I, I think it's important that if you identify someone's not that great cultural fit, that you manage them out uh, very effectively and very quickly so that you don't take a chance of contaminating that culture that you've worked so hard to build. Well, Jacob, thanks so much for sharing these ideas with our audience. Absolutely. I appreciate the time, Daniel. I hope I was able to provide some insight for everyone. To further discuss the data behind the MGMA stat poll, we're joined by Stefan Jarmus, data analyst with the MGMA stat team. Stefan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on today, Daniel. Your team recently released an MGMA stat poll. 
It asked healthcare leaders, what is most important when hiring staff? What were the results of that research? Um, yeah, yeah. This, uh, th so this poll was sent out April 30th uh, to our panel, um, and the majority of responses, uh, about 69%, responded that that cultural fit was the most important uh, when hiring. You know, followed by 13% saying previous experience, and um, you know the the rest kind of being made of technical competency and um, other responses, um, each being about 9%. Wow, so almost 70% point to cultural fit. Uh, did that surprise you? Um, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, we, we try to re remain as objective as possible, you know, throughout the polling process. Um, however, you know, I, I was surprised that uh, cultural fit was, was directly identified um, as being the most important uh, factor, you know, especially because healthcare uh, tends to be a very certification previous experience heavy industry. So yeah, it was, it was a surprising uh, result. Yeah. Why do you think that's the case? I mean, the culture plays such a pivotal role in the hiring process. Um, you know, our, our, our research team actually just finished uh, publishing a great report on this subject um, titled Factors of a Positive Culture in Behavior Modeling, Communication, and Engagement Empowerment. Um, and in this report, you know, we, we uh, tried to provide answers and tips um, you know, to solving questions like exactly like this one, you know, um, you know, what we discovered, you know, with our interviews and our polling, our focus groups was that, you know, employee turnover, you know, job satisfaction, operational success, you know, they all have a common denominator, which is practice culture. Now, we've been talking about the quantitative side of the stat poll. Is there a qualitative element as well? Um, yeah, so along with, um, you know, the these these questions, you know, our our primary goal is to, you know, get a read on on, you know, these topics from these healthcare leaders. But we also um, have an opportunity to, um, you know, ask follow up questions to get more to that that qualitative element. Um, you know, so when we set up a question, um, you know, for instance, this one had an other response, um, you know, for what's the most important. Um, to, to give people that, to give respondents that open space to uh, communicate to us what, what they find as, as most important. And, you know, for instance, with this poll this week, um, you know, these open-ended responses can range from, you know, a one-word answer to, you know, sentences and paragraphs. Um, but, you know, there were some really interesting uh, responses this week. You know, I think, um, you know, a lot of individuals responded as, you know, all of these factors are equally important, you know, when, when hiring a staff, um, which is, is, is good to, to know. And then, you know, the other one that, that I really liked was, you know, that, that they hire for, you know, somebody who's hungry, who's humble, and who's smart um, when they're looking for an employee, which, you know, I thought um, really said a lot to, you know, that culture and that practice, um, which was, was very unique. Right. Now, are there any other indicators to suggest a prospective hire would be a good fit? Are there things that can be done in the hiring process that you found in your research? Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, when doing research, you know, for the, the data story and, you know, doing research for our analysis report, you know, we, we came across emotional intelligence and, uh, you know, personality um, testing quite frequently. There's, there's a, a lot of literature um, out there on the importance of identifying emotional intelligence and, and utilizing 
um, you know, different tools uh, like personality testing uh, during the recruitment process to to assist with identifying those things. And you know, it, looking at you know just the most common tests in in the personality tests in the healthcare industry, you know, all of them very much aim to provide a view of you know, a potential employee's, you know, self-awareness and their social consciousness and their motivation and their empathy, things that, that usually we can't uh, quantify directly. Um, but yeah, these, these are definitely a good place to, to start. Well, that's great. Stefan, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you very much for the opportunity to chat about what we do over here in research. With the unemployment rate dropping to a record low 3.6%, a level not seen in 50 years, it's created an extremely competitive marketplace. To help practices identify candidates and close the deal, we're joined by author, keynote speaker, and business consultant, Dr. Susan Murphy. Hi, Susan. Thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Daniel. I'm happy to be here with you to talk about such an important topic. In your book, Maximizing Performance Management, you, you talk about getting the right people in place in, in a medical practice. And I wanted to ask you about that. Is it really about getting the right people? Um, because it seems without that, it doesn't matter about processes and procedures, right? Yes, Daniel, you're absolutely correct. The right people make the difference in a medical practice. You may um, know about Jim Collins. He wrote the best-selling book, good to great. And I like to think about him when I think about interviewing and hiring because he found that great companies do four things well. First, they get the right people on the bus. Second, they get the right people in the right seats on the bus. Third, they get the wrong people off the bus and they always put the who before the what. If you hire the wrong staff member, it's not only expensive, it's very expensive. In fact, it can cost 50 to 150% of their annual salary in recruitment and orientation costs. And that doesn't even cover the loss of quality and the stress to the other team members who are covering that vacant position. Yeah, I love that quote. And I, I love Jim Collins' writing. I had an opportunity to hear him as a keynote speaker a couple of years ago. And he is not only inspiring, he just has so much great information about organizations. Um, and I, I wanted to kind of go to the next aspect of this. Right now, we're in a very unique uh, dynamic as far as workplace and employment is concerned, particularly with medical practices. All the studies show, and, and our listeners know this firsthand, that there are tremendous shortages and there's tremendous turnover in medical practices. For the sake of this conversation, let's assume you're a practice with a job opening, what's the first step you should take? Because we, we often hear that term, first things first, but what is that first step here that we should take? Great question. And I would say first is to don't just fill the vacancy without thinking strategically about it. You've got to determine whether that vacancy really needs to be filled, and if so, with what kind of skill set one of the temptations that we have is to immediately start looking for someone who just left the position, someone like the person being replaced. And so I recommend that you look at the job from a fresh point of view. This could be a great opportunity to restructure, reorganize, or even promote 
one of your team members who's been there a while with you. And if you do need to replace, then you need to say, well, so what kind of position? So the next step is to truly define the job and then write that description. And you, the kinds of things that you would look at with this fresh set of eyes is, what are the most important duties that this new team member will perform? And truly to define the qualifications necessary for the job, meaning your duties, responsibilities, the skills, the training, the licenses, the certifications, to really uh, hone in on the kind of person that you want. And that includes really verifying the job title and the salary range. What are the hours and days of the week? Where will this person report? And are important interpersonal skills required of this person? Plus, do they need to have certain physical attributes? For example, do they need to be physically strong? Are they going to be pushing and lifting patients around? One thing that I also recommend, if your organization has rules of conduct developed, which I believe organizations do need to have rules of conduct that are along with the value system and the mission of the organization, I recommend you include those rules of conduct with the job description. In fact, sometimes in the job description. So they are really judged on not only the technical aspects of the job they do, but the way that they behave as a team member. Mm -hmm. Now, let's accept the idea that the job opening's there, you've defined and identified what you need for the job. What are the interviewing guidelines you'd recommend? Because there's so many directions an organization can go and so many directions that that job interview process can go. So what are those best practices that someone can really hone in on and help identify the person that they need? Yes, there are. You should determine if the candidate's resume provides evidence of meeting the technical dimensions of the job. Look at their past accomplishments. Don't accuse excuse the sloppiness, typos, errors in punctuation or spelling, because that probably means the person is not as attuned to details as you want. Look for red flags like too many jobs in recent years, unclear indication of why they left the job and a thing called qualifiers, which is when somebody writes, I have knowledge of this or assisted with this or I've been exposed to this, which shows that they haven't performed the duties necessarily, but they've seen them. And you want someone that is a top performer in those technical aspects. Now, there are different platforms or areas where people engage in interviews. There are telephone interviews, there are face-to-face -face interviews. Are there major differences um, and different goals that you want to achieve in those different types of interviews? What are the, I guess, the biggest differences and, and perhaps some of the similarities that you'd find? Absolutely, there are differences. In fact, interviews on the phone are good for screening candidates before you've got the time-consuming face-to-face interviews for the serious candidates. Phone interviews shouldn't be more than about 15 minutes. And during that conversation, you can determine whether the candidate is interested, is qualified, available, the salary they're expecting, and whether the candidate wants to, to interview further for that position. So I recommend you develop a consistent list of questions that you ask each candidate. 
many organizations don't do that, and I believe it's very important to do that. In the face-to-face -face interview, you're looking more seriously at the candidate, candidate, and it's it's more of an in-depth looking at the body language, attitude, professionalism, and so forth. And with both phone interviews and face-to-face -face interviews, it's important for the interviewer to listen a lot and talk a little. Now, this is something that a lot of new interviewers don't understand very well. And for the interview, a good interview has the candidate speaking approximately 75% of the interview. And the manager should just be speaking about 25%. So they, in, it, once you interview the candidate and determine that the candidate is qualified and interested, that's when you describe the organization and the position, not first, because you can go into more depth if you find out this person truly could fit with your organization. The, the goal is not to hire people who are at the best at interviewing. What you want to do is hire people who are the high performers and will fit with your culture. Some people have taken courses in how to be interviewed. So it's important that the managers and the people in the practices dig deeper to find the true information about the candidate. And I have a, a story I'd like to tell you about a guy named Bill, who is an engineer that came to interview with me when, when I was opening a new hospital. And Bill came for his interview and he seemed very uncomfortable without very much to say. And that day, my office was especially warm, and I apologized to Bill that my office was so warm. And I mentioned that the thermostat wasn't working very well. Well, Bill, this engineer, perked up, took a screwdriver out of his pocket and said, do you mind if I take a look at it? And I said, <laughs> go right ahead. Yeah. So Bill approached the thermostat on the wall, adjusted some settings, and said, that should do it. So within 10 minutes, the temperature stabilized, and I hired soft-spoken Bill after checking his references. And of course, he turned out to be a fabulous team member. But he wasn't very adept at making conversation in interviews. So it's important that we get to know the candidates for who they are. When you are interviewing someone, we, you use that great example with Bill, who you wound up hiring, but they're things that you're looking for, and you had said that he wasn't a great verbal interviewer. I mean, he, did, he was a man of action. He got up and uh, fixed the thermostat for you. But beyond that, are there, are there verbal and nonverbal cues that uh, the interviewer can be looking for during that interview process? Yes, there are. In fact, this could go back into what can you teach people so that they can become great interviewers. These are great content for that area as well. So the kinds of nonverbal signals that to watch out for candidates that they're sending is to look at their body language. Is it open? Are they natural? Are they non-defensive? Do they have good eye contact? Can you sense that there's enthusiasm for the job? Does the person become tense when you ask them about the reason for their leaving their past job? If you feel that a candidate is hiding something when responding, ask that individual to elaborate in order to get more information and clarification. Because resumes are sometimes exaggerated. In fact, there's a term called resume inflation, where people often exaggerate the positions that they've had. Once I was interviewing a woman to be a supervisor, 
And on her resume, she'd said that she'd been a supervisor for 10 years. But my gut told me differently because of looking at nonverbal cues. And when I checked her references, I was told that, sure, that candidate had always wanted to be a supervisor, but she'd never been promoted. Mm-hmm. So that's just good to pay attention to your gut and to watch the nonverbal cues that they're giving. And and then there are some verbal cues you can watch and, and see if the person says I frequently, which may appear that they're more focused on themselves, say on the team or potentially for patients. Mm-hmm. They you may maybe somebody has negative comments about old supervisors or, or their their old teammates they used to have. And sometimes you can you can you can hear a condescending type attitude, which doesn't go very well in teams nowadays. Now, let's say that the scenario is played out. You've you found the right person. You've identified them that you want among your team. But let's consider the marketplace medical practices are in right now. This is historically low unemployment. You have to go all the way back to 1969 to find a similar market. Uh, it's very competitive to bring people in. So let's say people have multiple offers. How do you close the deal? What's, give us a checklist of compensation, culture, benefits. What does that look like if you are going to get that right person and then close the deal with them? Well, I know a lot of medical practices are strapped for salary and benefits. And I believe that one of the key things is to sell your culture. If you have developed a great culture where the team members are enthusiastic and do high-performing work where your patients are happy, from my experience, I've found that that will help retain and attract the employees that you want, especially millennials and Gen Xers. That is what they are often look for. Many of them want a home where they can stay a long time. The press doesn't say that, but it, uh, from my experience, I found that people want to be proud of where they work and they want to work with people that they can have as friends. Susan, thanks for joining the podcast today. Well, thank you for this opportunity, Daniel. You can find more info and a preview of Susan's book at mgma.com performance. The low unemployment rate is also changing the hiring process. Many practices are having to change their recruitment and their onboarding strategies. Joining me now are Molly Ramsey and Amber Peterson from MedMan Medical Management. Amber is an administrator and Molly is the Principal and Corporate Operations Director. Molly, Amber, thanks so much for joining me. We're happy to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. So, Molly, let's start with you. what is the purpose of onboarding? What, what is it that you guys want to achieve for the company and for the new hire? Great question. You know, we've all heard and know that first impressions are really important, but not only the first impression of a candidate, but the candidate's first impression of us as a potential employer. Um, for every new hire who joins your company, how they feel during those first days, weeks, months on the job can really influence their success in the role that we've hired them for. So the path to significantly influencing that or the retention begins before they even walk in the door. Um, We understand that it's an investment on the part of the employer. However, statistics show that on average, one in five new hires leave within the first 45 days of starting a job. 
That's why it's really critical to having an onboarding plan in place. We want to ensure that we are increasing the odds of retaining the good hires that our interview process has yielded and that the employee is experiencing a sense of being valued from the start. And that really does set the tone for their hopefully long <laughs> career with your organization. Okay. Now, when does the onboarding process begin for you guys? Immediately. Um, from the very first interaction that they have with your practice, whether it's through the application process to the email or the phone call that they receive for scheduling that very first interview, that's when that onboarding process begins. And truly that interaction is a reflection of your organization in terms of is the process arduous to apply for the job? Are we professional and timely in our interactions in scheduling that interview? That all plays into the um, impression that they're making and it's setting the tone for what we expect in terms of the, the caliber or the um, professionalism that we expect of our employees and of them as potential new hires. Mm -hmm. I think that's interesting because I, I know that when uh, a person arrives on that first day and people seem to know who they are and uh, there's a computer magically uh, waiting for them at their workstation, all those things that it just, it's like it's there, but really there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes. So what's that like getting all prepared for that and getting the whole team involved? How do you, how do you make sure that the team, or it might be depending on the size of the company, the entire company knows that this new person is coming on board and that you're ready for them? Absolutely. It's magic. <laughs> so in preparation for that first day, you want to ensure that first off, that the following information has been communicated to the employee. The start date is clear. The time and place where they're going to meet on that first date is confirmed. They know what to wear, where to park, if there's any kind of nuances. That, all of that information is, again, setting them up for success and, and a good reflection of your organization. So then the other piece of it is, is that you are ensuring that your team, the existing team, is on the same page in terms of that new hire. So on that first day, first and foremost, whomever, whomever is going to greet that person knows that they're coming. We don't want that new hire to be greeted with, I'm sorry, who are you? Oh, or I didn't re realize we had hired someone. Rather, we want them greeted with something along the lines of, hi, Susan, you know, welcome to the team. We're happy you're here. Let me go get so-and-so. They're expecting you. So setting that tone, making sure that there's really good communication on our end, setting the expectations. Another thing that we have, mistake that we've made, and I'm sure others have done, is treating the new hire start date as just an ordinary day or worse yet, an inconvenience. We don't want that to be, that feeling to be relayed to that new hire. And we also want to be well organized on our end so that we're not frazzled. So a couple of things that you can do there is welcoming them with some type of, you know, logo wear um, or scrubs or whatever items that you might have as a company that creates a personal touch and an indicator to the new hire that, yes, in fact, we are expecting you and we're excited to have you here. The other piece is just starting the day by making the rounds around the practice and making personal introductions. In addition to those introductions and walking them around, you want to ensure that that communication, again, has gone out to the entire team. So those that might not be present that first day when that person's there or might not interact with them on that first interaction, they're aware of what's going on. 
So you want to know, you know, what's their name, what's the position, what day are they starting, and if you have multiple sites, what location are they going to be primarily working in? Um, and then a big piece of that too is just ending the day with a scheduled check-in to review, you know, the progress of the onboarding. Are there any questions? Fill in any gaps of information and just really gauge their overall feeling about the new role. You know, are they enthusiastic? Are they kind of portraying a sense of being overwhelmed or, or bored? <laughs> um, this helps you make any ne necessary mid-course corrections to the onboarding agenda for the coming days and weeks. And really, and then this might seem simple or obvious that you would do this, but close the conversation by confirming what time and where do they need to show up for day two. You know, because day one may have been different than what is going to happen now that they're out on their own for day two. So those are all important elements of making sure that that first day really goes, goes well for everyone involved. Right. And it seems like there's so many moving parts to that first day in particular. Uh, is there a checklist that you have in place or that a, you recommend that a practice should have in place? And what's on that checklist? Yes, absolutely. A checklist in place saves everyone um, heartache. So you'll want to have a checklist that's essentially broken into three sections, uh, before, first day, and after. The after, after can be post first day and be in increments of time, for example, 30 days post hire or 90 days post hire, etc. But be real specific with those tasks listed on the checklist. And you want to make this a, it's an opportunity to be collaborative with your existing team. So having those that are going to be, you know, have responsibilities that impact this new hire, have them be a part of creating the checklist. And really the checklist, the investment of time is upfront or initially, and there's a lot of areas of that that can be duplicate, duplicated for multiple positions within the organization. And then it's just refinement or fine tuning that you have to do, you know, moving forward. But it really is, uh, a multi-person, multi-department um, opportunity to collaborate. But the types of things you're wanting to do, for example, before the first day, is have items like making sure name badges are ordered, identifying the com computer needs and EHR permissions, setting up email addresses and adding them to the company directory and relevant email lists. Things like that that are gonna not, um, you don't wanna create barriers them to being effective and being able to interact with their, their peers as they come on board. Um, one more piece about the checklist is just not keeping the new hire in the dark. So making your onboarding and your checklist transparent to the new, the new hire, this really creates an opportunity for them to have confidence in their training. And if they've got specific questions and they've been able to review that checklist or the onboarding agenda, whatever it might be, they know that they're going to have time with a specific person or something's going to be addressed that allows them to kind of ease their sense of worry or sense of potentially being overwhelmed and that they can be real present in the moment and whatever items need to be addressed. Now, I have never worked at a medical practice, but I have started new jobs and it can be a bit overwhelming and chaotic when you walk in that first day. Uh, and they kind of ease you into it, but at a medical practice, I mean, I don't, do you ease someone into it or do you throw them into the fire? I mean, what is it like uh, to kind of get in there and get your feet wet, but also not get too overwhelmed right from the start? So I can take that. Um, Daniel, is, I have worked in many medical practices. Uh, yeah, see, it's the same onboarding process 
as any other industry, I'd like to say, in the fact that you still have your compliance orientation, that kind of stuff. Um, and then there's also the hands-on um, to go forward. So again, uh, try not to make it boring on the first day, make it inviting, have your compliance training and your um, orientation or training that has to, mandatory training that has to be done, done over a period of time if your organization will allow you, so that, that their first day they're getting a little bit of introduction to everybody, but then they're also getting some hands-on experience to what they were hired for. So if I hire a clinical medical assistant, let them actually see patients on their first day. Don't have them sit behind a computer all day doing your OSHA, fire, all that kind of stuff. Um, that shows them that you're ready for them and that uh, this is an exciting place to work. Okay. Well, Amber, Molly, thanks so much for joining us and sharing those insights today. Yeah, thank you for having us. Our pleasure. Well, that concludes part one of our staff management series. Thanks to our guests, Jacob Simon, Stefan Jarmus, Susan Murphy, Molly Ramsey, and Amber Peterson. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. We'd love to hear from you and what you think about the show. Email us at podcast at mgma.com. MGMA Insights is presented by Craig Weberg, Declan McGee, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening.